0: Ukraine's armed forces continue carrying out the counteroffensive, advancing farther to the south. In the meantime, Denmark and the Netherlands committed to provide Ukraine with 61 F-16 fighter jets. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm Ukrainian philosopher, journalist and chief editor of Ukraine World, and I'm joined by my colleagues Maxim Panchenko and Anastasia Heresemchuk, journalists and analysts at Ukraine World, to discuss key events in and around Ukraine for the last week between August 15th and August 21st, 2023. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internet Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Let me remind you that you can support our work at patreon.com ukraineworld. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front lines at paypal, ukraine.resisting at gmail.com. Maxim and Nastya, thanks so much for joining this conversation. So let us discuss the key events and trends in and around Ukraine over the past week, from August 15th until August 21st. Uh, Maxim, let me ask you to introduce our key topics today.
1: Hello, Volodya. So we are going to, as usually, discuss the developments in the front lines, the bombings by Russia of Ukrainian cities, we're going to discuss diplomacy, the diplomatic tour that President Zelensky has had in Europe and how it has led to the final procurement of the F-16 for Ukraine. We're going to talk about the explosions in Russia and how, what that means to the general picture, to the overall picture. And then we are going to talk a little bit about the developments in the occupied territories and the assessments on how Russia is trying to erode Ukrainian identity there.
0: So let us start uh, talking with about counteroffensive because there is, uh, you know, publications in the international press. We have seen it in Washington Post recently, and in other publications, it seems that there is a certain leaked information from the American intelligence that uh, the counteroffensive is very slow and um, um, and with with you know consequences of this reflection. At the same time, uh, we do understand that there are huge minefields in the southern of Ukraine southern parts of Ukraine so Russians have uh, prepared very well for Ukrainian counteroffensive but at the same time we see a certain progress uh, even if it is quite slow it's not as dramatic it's not as spectacular as uh, let's say uh, one year ago uh, in September 2022 when Ukrainians liberated lots of parts of Kharkiv region but we, sh- we need to understand that Russians have prepared much, much better. And the question, the real question is if Ukrainians um, can really break through these defensive lines and if they can break through these defensive lines, then, uh, of course, the counteroffensive will go much faster. So, Maxim, what can you tell us about about this issue? Well... First of all, I'm going to
1: comment on this uh, would-be frustration with the tempo of the, uh, of the counteroffensive because those who uh, say about this in the West, in Western press, they think about counteroffensive and counteroffensives generally as uh, f- from the American point of view, from the Western point of view, because they think, okay, so we trained these guys, many of these guys in Europe, in, in the U.S., Uh, And we are uh, now expecting them to follow the strategy that we have taught them. And that strategy would be like the assault strategy. Uh, And instead, Ukraine, uh, having tried that in the battlefields, indeed, after these trainings in Europe, elsewhere, uh, they understood that we are going to... Better to uh, go back to our older strategy, to the things uh, that we know how they work, Uh, and to refuse from this assault strategy that we were trained in Europe, but we are going to keep lives, more lives that way. So this is not about a failure of the counteroffensive, of course. It's about a different paradigm that Ukraine has chosen to pursue. And yes, it's going to uh, take longer, but it's going to save more life and more of strategic resource in that sense, in the battlefield. So that's one. My second comment would be that it is not a black and white picture. It's not like there are only um, pessimistic assessments in the West about the counteroffensive in Ukraine. For instance, in the Western press during the last week, there have been uh, assessments that uh, Ukrainians have essentially embroiled already in the warfare for the retaking of the Tokmak town which is uh, deeper between uh, behind the front lines of uh, from the russian side. And in this particular uh, particular case I would say that this to the country might be an overestimation because if we see uh, if we have a look at the map uh, there are around 20 kilometers still to the to the town of Tokmok. So and yes operationally speaking that would probably mean that ukrainians are working in that direction, and we are advancing in that specific direction. But this is not the warfare for the town itself just yet. So we can see that the assessments are quite uh, scattery, I would say, if that's the word. Uh, they are quite miscellaneous, and uh, this, I think, in, its, in itself, is a testimony to the fact that uh, there are many blurred lines, there is many, much haziness, as to what indeed is happening in the front lines. But the, uh, the, my, my assessment that I would come forward with is that, according to my perception, things are accelerating a bit. We, uh, this is very visible from, the, from how more frequent, uh, relatively at least, the news in Ukrainian media have become on the retaking of specific villages of specific small towns because previously we could have such uh, news maybe once in several weeks now we have this news maybe once twice every week so these things are accelerating which may mean that we indeed have passed the majority of the uh, minefields or at least found the corridors through them and we have come into direct contact with the uh, Russian troops behind the prepared lines. So things are
0: accelerating. That would be my, my uh, conclusion here. Indeed, and we need to understand also that the, uh, the density of the minefields is huge and uh, actually how the Soviet army would overcome the density of the minefields during the Second World War. Uh, it would just send people, uh, send soldiers which were called pencils in the jargon of the Soviet army. So you're sending pencils and you don't really care about their lives. This is this is what the Soviet tactics was. And of course, lots of people would be uh, exploded on these mines, would be dead. So these assaults, which actually you're sure that this group of people will be dead. But at least it, it will demine by their bodies, by their lives, did the, the field. Of course, Ukrainian army is not going to do that. Ukrainian army is totally different. It is trying to save the soldiers' lives. This is one of the key differences with the Russian army. And therefore, uh, Ukrainians are trying to be much more careful. Therefore, one of the discussions today, and as far as I know, what is uh, Ukrainian diplomacy is trying to find is this demining machines and um, they can come for example not from the western countries but from ca- countries like south korea for example so this is indeed a, a big question we see if we see on the map we see that there is a progress near robot uh, in the militant direction and we see that gradually indeed the the ukrainians are trying to dig into uh go um uh, through uh go into the 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 russian controlled territories so um i do think that we need patience and we need of course more more equipment mining equipment but also the other equipment and also of course the uh the planes the jets and i think we will talk about this issue later let us turn to the russia's bombings of the ukrainian peaceful cities which is continue which continues practically every day with some very tragic consequences. So, Nastya, let me ask you to make an overview of the recent attacks, including the tragedy of Chernihiv a few days ago.
2: Russia doesn't stop terrorizing Ukrainian peaceful cities and Ukrainian citizens. So there were several uh, waves of massive attacks by Russia uh, on the city of Dnipro, Zaporizhia, Lviv, Lutsk, Khmelnytsky, Smila. Um, and this, in these cities, the infrastructural uh, facilities were the particular target. Um, and Russia has usually used these tactics of night shellings, night bombings. And of course, they used the um, mixed mixed uh, ways to do this, as usually Russians used missiles and UAVs. And the um, most tragic event that happened the last week was the attack uh, on Chernihiv, on the city center. Russians sent, uh, fired a ballistic missile on the city center in the morning while uh, people uh, were... were in the city center, were walking there. And there was also an event, an exhibition that took place in the drama theater, which was actually the main target of this attack. So as a result of this attack, uh, seven people were killed and almost 160 were wounded. Uh, What is particularly uh, terrible about this attack is that It was a religious holiday, and one of the main churches in uh, Chernihiv was located not far away from that place. And mostly people who were coming back from the church and those who were crossing the road, those who were um, in their cars, private cars, they uh, were killed or wounded uh, the most heavily. Those people who were in the drama theater, who were attending the exhibition, mostly they managed to go to the uh, shelter. Uh, that's why their lives were saved. Uh, but we also should note here that uh, Russians used ballistic missiles. That's why at the time uh, people didn't have enough time to hide. I mean, those who were uh, in the streets, who were outdoors, it is hardly possible to find a shelter while a ballistic missile is uh, falling over your head. So it's a matter of several minutes, and Russians knew uh, what were they targeting, and they knew these devastating consequences.
0: Maxim, maybe you could add something about this?
1: Uh, The only thing I could add to this is that um, usually Ukrainian authorities do not... uh, Disclose what particular facilities are being hit because this uh, this week uh, As Nesta said was a week of assault specifically on on infrastructure in several big cities like Dnipro, Lutsk and uh, So presumably Russia is trying to uh, take out the strategic Enterprises in Ukraine because presumably they uh, work for the benefit of Ukrainian Ukrainian armed forces but the reason I'm talking about this is because this leads to a bigger picture. This also leads to the discussion of uh, on the importance of the delivery of more air defense to Ukraine. Because it's not just to uh, make the air defense already existent uh, more dense. It's about the fact that Russia has a disproportionately bigger access, so to say, to, to targets in the Ukrainian territory, even in the deep air. Uh, whereas Ukrainian abilities in that sense are quite uh, limited, even though they're growing, about which we're going to talk a little bit later this in this episode. So, and, and the war cannot be won with this disparity, because this rare, this enterprises in the rare of the country, they nurture the possibilities at the front lines. So there is this connection that needs to be seen. Uh, why Ukraine needs more air defense, even in the big cities, because you would assume that where else would Ukraine have better air defense than in big cities like Dnipro and Zaporizhia. But not for now, from what can be contextually understood, only Kyiv has a, like an a, almost an ironclad uh, air defense. But there are other big cities, there are cities that had maybe had not been the million cities, so to say, but have become so because of the amount of refugees, that IDPs that came there, like maybe Odessa or uh, Zaporizhia once again, or Kharkiv. So we understand that there is big importance to increase the capabilities there.
0: And we are expecting uh, autumn and winter, and we are expecting the repetition of what the Russians have been doing uh, last year when they were targeting the energy facilities with the missiles. So, of course, this makes Ukraine vulnerable. But by the way, we can also say that Russia is extremely vulnerable as Ukraine reaches out to many, many places inside Russia. But let us move to another topic, and this will be rather a diplomatic topic, but also linked to security very much. And one of the key news uh, of the past days is that on August 19th and 20th, President Zelensky visited Sweden, Denmark, and the Netherlands and basically got something very important from this visit. Nastya, what can you tell us about this?
2: Indeed, the uh, visits of President Zelensky to Sweden, Denmark and Netherlands were uh, of extreme importance. And we also can say that it was a big success for uh, Ukrainian, not only diplomacy, but for our defense and military capabilities. So let's start with his first uh, destination. Let's start with his visit to Sweden. Uh, There, uh, our president met with the leadership of the state. He uh, met with the uh, prime minister, with the... uh, royal family with the representatives of parliament. And the main topics to discuss were the military aid to Ukraine, bilateral relations, of course, Euro integration and the security of the whole Euro-Atlantic uh, space. Um, but let's focus on the main results for Ukraine uh, that this visit brought to us. So first of all, uh, the sides, Sweden and Ukraine agreed uh, on common production of infantry fighting vehicles, CV-90. Uh, let me remind our listeners that Sweden provided Ukraine with uh, several dozens of these infantry fighting vehicles, and they are on, already in the battlefield, and they uh, showed the results and effectiveness. Uh, so the decision to produce and um do service to these uh, weaponry, to these vehicles, uh, is really essential. And it's already the next stage of uh, strengthening Ukrainian military capabilities and deepening the cooperation with our partners. Another important result of this visit was the beginning of test trainings of Ukrainian pilots on uh, Swedish jets. These are Gripen jets. Uh, so um, most probably, Sweden, uh, in some time after some time, will manage to provide Ukraine with these uh, jets. But everything will depend on these test trainings. So we will uh, observe the situation. And uh, there was also the beginning of trainings on the Archer self-propelled um, guns. So the new new amounts, like new parts of Ukrainian military came to Sweden to learn how to use this weaponry. And uh, Sweden also told about the 13th aid uh, package to Ukraine. So uh, the new um, weapons and money for military capabilities will be provided to Ukraine. Uh, if we talk about uh, the visits to Netherlands and Denmark, the most remarkable, the most important results uh, result will be uh, explained to you. We will tell about it uh, about it to you a bit later. Uh, it's about the um, jets Ukraine has been waiting for so long. But in general, uh, the visits were uh, the talks uh, President Zelensky hold with the. Um, leadership of the netherlands and denmark were focused on ukraine's peace formula the preparation to global peace summit and again military and security issues Uh, by the way today uh, president zelensky addressed the um, parliament of denmark and there he once again uh, emphasized the importance of weapons supply to supplies to ukraine uh, stressing on the fact that it's not about assaults themselves. These weapons, they are the means to save Ukrainians' lives. And also, uh, I think it's also worth mentioning here that um, President Zelensky, he um, expressed the gratitude of Ukrainian people to Denmark for its support. And we also know that uh, the government of Denmark, the Denmark as the state, took the patronage uh, of the uh, region. So uh, this country in particular will help to rebuild, restore um, the whole region in Ukraine. And uh, there are also um, uh, rumors. There is information from the Greek side that further, President Zelensky will not come back to Kiev, but will go to Greece. Uh, to have talks with the representatives of the state and also with the leaders of Western Balkans.
0: It's interesting that the countries which are now providing this assistance are Netherlands and Denmark, because I would say that it is somehow unexpected, maybe, um, that there is such a level of support from these countries and these countries become uh one of those locomotives one of those engines of uh military support of Ukraine and it's interesting and very important how it really you know enlarges how this how the support is articulated uh even from the countries as we know the Netherlands after the tragedy of MH17 it's a country which which really gets probably better understanding what is going on Maybe this understanding came not uh, initially, uh, but gradually it it came. And we see that Nordic countries, uh, countries of the Northern Europe, are actually engaging very much in helping Ukraine. So let us talk about these jets, and Maxima will turn to you. So Denmark and the Netherlands agreed to uh, provide 61 F-16 jets to Ukraine, which is a Rather big number, and uh, we see that we hope that uh, this long talk about F 16 will now uh, have um, a significant progress. So, what can you say about this?
1: Well, uh, I think that indeed this might be a little bit unexpected uh, because uh, of how small, as you said, these countries are relatively, but I think that uh, there are. These figures are telling in several different uh, on several different occasions. I would say, first of all, if you look at the map of the operators of F16s, it is not. Uh, used in each of the country, uh, of the NATO countries, uh, you would be surprised, I think, that, that not all of them use them. And because, like, for instance, countries like France have very strong aerial industry themselves. They, for instance, uh, use their own Raphaels. And uh, so maybe it's not even, uh, it should not be considered as a surprise that uh, like this is specifically in the Netherlands and Denmark who provide Ukraine with those jets as opposed to other bigger countries but we should understand that maybe the choice had not been so big in the first place and so negotiations were in place secondly uh, from what I understand uh, like there is um, this uh, program of um, operational a unity between the armed forces of Germany and the Netherlands. They basically have a joint army by these days. And this allows the Netherlands to know that there is going to be an umbrella over them so that they can use their resources for the support of Ukraine. That might be the story here. But what's more important here is that I would like to put this Figure of sixty-one uh, fighter jets into several contexts. First of all, in the into the context of how many uh, fighter jets of its own uh, of its own aerial park, so to say, Ukraine had in 2020-2021, before the full-scale invasion. Ukraine had around two hundred operational jets of different modifications that were combat ready, but that. Uh, were not also very modern, because Ukraine has not renovated its uh, stock of jets for the last 30 years, pretty much during the independence years. So we have had only like 200 machines that are not brand new. And receiving 61 jet, additional jet, uh, of a higher quality, presumably, I mean, that's there is a difference between Western equipment and, and uh, Soviet-made equipment, has always been. Uh, this is, a, I, I would say, a, a, a game-changer. Uh, so this is an addition of a third uh, of Ukraine's capacities, and we do not even uh, consider the gripings here, because we only assume they will be given to Ukraine, because Ukrainian pilots are being trained, but no official data is available yet. So that's one. Uh, context. And the second context is that Ukrainian, um, I think it was Yuri Hinnat, who is the spokesperson for Ukrainian uh, uh, aerial forces, he said that Russian supremacy in air over Ukraine, uh, quantitatively speaking, is five to six times bigger. Its resources is five to six times bigger than those that Ukraine has. So even though... The West, according to the um, figures that have so far been uh, proclaimed, uh, is going to give Ukraine as much as a third of its of its uh, capacity on top of what it already has. Still, it might not be enough because of that five to six times supremacy of Russia. We need to convert this Western equipment, this Western machines, into the qualitative edge over Russia to uh, to make it. Uh, well, to make this quantitative edge of Russia fade out in order, you know, to bring up par- parity in the air, because that's crucial in the front lines. And by the way, for the, uh, for the tempo of the counteroffensive, which we discussed uh, at, the, at the start of this episode
0: indeed but in many aspects quantity is really not the decisive factor and uh, i would turn right now to the next topic and i would like you maxim to comment on this this is the topic of ukraine targeting the uh the russian facilities military facilities in the in the rear uh deep in the rear and uh for example, I would give you an example that Crimea itself is is extremely vulnerable geopolitically because you should just target the two bridges, right? The two connections, the the Crimea, the Kerch bridge which connects uh, Crimea to the mainland Russia and the, the bridges um, around Chonhar, which com- connect Crimea to the occupied territories of Ukraine, Russia-occupied territories of Ukraine. And this is what Ukraine is actually doing. If you target these two small, little, tiny connectors all the time, you basically make the logistics very very difficult or even impossible and i think this is one of the strategies of ukraine as you rightly said at the beginning so ukraine continues to really target the the um, shell the targets of russia in in the deep air. can you develop on that
1: yes so i think that it's my perception that uh, ukraine has managed to uh, complete clandestine development of several key military sectors during this a uh, year and a half of the war. So in my perception it's like when it comes to conventional warfare Ukraine relies uh, increasingly so on the support of, uh, of its western partners like Heavy weaponry, artillery, IFVs, etc., etc. But when it comes to the modern warfare, to investing into the novel technologies that can uh, tilt the scales in Ukraine's favor, I'm talking about drones and sea drones here. It seems like Ukraine has a bet, has made a bet here, because uh, indeed the number of assaults on the Russian facilities in the rear. Uh, as far as six to seven hundred kilometers from Ukraine's border have become increasingly more frequent. And of course, it's not always told uh, that uh, Ukraine, it's Ukraine who has done it, but we understand that it's just not being told in most cases, because that's the rules of war, and not to reveal one's uh, secrets. But indeed, Ukraine has uh, managed to increase the frequency of hits on strategic uh, enterprises in Russia, for instance, uh, Ukraine has hit uh, the port in Novorossiysk a, a couple of days back, uh, and uh, once again, this is something uh, that uh, is very helpful because we need to understand that this is where one of the Russian fleet uh, is based, and this is one of the points from which uh, Russian, I would say, capacities are projected to the to the, to the southern Ukrainian uh, occupied territories. The drones may be um, launched from there. The Shahads, I mean, the Iranian drones, usually are uh, launched from that area, etc., etc. And also, uh, if you look at the density of the news, of how much, how frequently uh, the Moscow um, airports, of which there are three major ones, have closed their operation during the last weeks because of the uh, unidentified UAVs being around and uh, bringing about damage to the facilities around. This is uh, in a way even unbelievable because first of all, we need to understand that there is the optics of things. Like, and the optics is about this increasing parity between the, between the possibilities of Ukraine and Russia when it comes to hitting the rear of the, of the other side. And uh, this is something that translates into the psychological effect very much. Secondly, there is direct effect that uh, indeed we uh, take out more and more facilities that are uh, behind the enemy's lines. And I would also suggest in this context that uh, this in itself is even a very good, it's another proof that these are Ukraine's developments, these are Ukraine's technologies that this is done with. Because we remember that uh, usually our, our partners in the West say that we provide you with weapons under the condition that you're not going to use it in Russia's territory. So we can assume, I think, that it's Ukrainian developments that hit those targets. And also we need to include the indirect economic impact, because for instance, when Russian airports need to be closed every now and then because of these attacks, there are millions in damages because of the canceled flights, because of uh, of how the operation of facilities is disrupted etc uh, etc et so of course this not may be decisive so far of course uh, it may not stop the war already tomorrow but the dynamics is what is very important here and it's increasing so fingers crossed
0: at the same time we should not uh, overestimate these strikes for example we should not overestimate the overestimate the strikes on moscow this uh, Moscow city buildings, etc., because they might have certain psychological effect. But do they really produce some, you know, advantage to to Ukraine? Uh, Do they really change the minds of the Russians that Moscow is attacked and therefore we will not attack Ukraine anymore? Of course not, uh, as the attacks on Kiev do not change the mind and the spirit of Ukrainians. So. yeah it is important also to to have a sober look on, on the attacks um on the Ukrainian attacks i think it is really important to attack the ammunition deposits to um to attack the logistic lines even as ukraine did recently to attack the russian tankers who are exporting oil because um this is also one of the basis key basis of the ukrainian economy of the russian economy i'm sorry but um uh, yeah, the the big question is what is the proportion? So how how much damage does it really the, does it really produce? Uh, let me address Nastia and uh, ask a question about what is happening on the and uh, the occupied territories because the British intelligence reports that Russia is actively trying to erode Ukrainian identity there. So uh, um, and we understand that this is one of the key elements of the Russian. Uh, tactics just to work with the identity to e- erase the identity the alterity of of the other of the other nation to turn ukrainians into russians so what can you tell us about this
2: Volodya? let's even focus not exactly what is going on on in the occupied territories let's look even a bit a big wider and deeper let's focus on the very essence of the russian aggression against ukraine and we told uh, more than one time that russian aggression against ukraine has genocidal character so it's not only about territories it's not only about geopolitics it's about annihilation of the whole nation and we see uh, the actions like that on various levels Uh, If we um, look at these attacks on civilians uh, or uh, attacks on peaceful cities, it's one element of these tactics, of this nature of the war, uh, killing as many Ukrainians as possible. If we look what is going on uh, on the front line, Uh, or what is going on with the prisoners of war and Ukrainian civilians kept in Russian prisons. We know about uh, systemic and systematic tortures. uh, And it's also about um, eroding Ukrainian identity because people are punished just for the fact that they are Ukrainians and there is no other explanation. If we talk about occupied territories, the same situation is going on there. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't know the amount of people who are tortured or pressured by uh, Russian um, authorities there. Just because of their identity and their pro-Ukrainian position, but there is another aspect, like let's say soft or milder aspect of uh, this genocidal activity. So how Ukraine, uh, how Russians are um, trying to, how they are attempting to blur, to raise Ukrainian identity, and finally uh, the Westerners already. Confirm it, and British when British intelligence reports such things, it it means that we are right regarding our um, analysis and assessment of the situation. So, uh, what we know from the occupied territories and what the British intelligence uh, reports, it's the activities of uh, occupation authorities in the occupied territories, which basically and mostly lay within the infospace. And when we talk about the infospace, we mean not only media, but um, if we can say physical infospace as well. So it's everything about information. It's not only internet or TV or radio. It's also about education. Uh, It's also about communication. It's about spreading propaganda in every possible mean. So the first thing, Uh, the occupation authorities are trying to influence, to erase Ukrainian identity is to influence schools and to conduct their activity exactly in the educational establishments. Uh, For example, now uh, in the occupied territories uh, to these schools, which uh, have been transformed to Russian schools, Uh, children are already receiving the new history textbooks. These are brand new history textbooks with Russian vision of history, which is, of course, distorted. And there are the whole parts uh, about the so-called special military operation in this book. And, of course, there is demonized image of Ukrainians. Uh, So uh, Ukrainian children that have to go, have to attend, uh, Russian schools in the occupied territories will learn about these events uh, under this distorted angle. What is another big problem here? it's hardly possible not to go to the Russian school in the occupied territories uh, because those parents who do not send their kids to these schools they are under the risk of being deprived of parental rights. And here is another aspect. And um, it's an attempt to assimilate Ukrainian population. Uh, Here we can talk about the forced passportization. So in order uh, to send your kid to this Russian school because you have to, uh, those parents, they have to obtain Russian passport because it's not possible to send your kid to school without obtaining Russian citizenship and Russian passports. So that's that's how, uh, that's how the tactics of russification, spreading propaganda, passportization uh, looks like. And these are all the elements of erasing the Ukrainian identity. Of course, we shouldn't forget about the Russian propaganda, we shouldn't forget about censorship, we shouldn't forget about Russian journalists who came to work to the occupied territories and who are presented at uh, TV and radio and in the newspapers of the occupied territories. So uh, this propaganda factor is, of course, extremely important. And unfortunately, Ukrainians in the occupied territories they don't have an access, almost don't have an access to Ukrainian information, because Russians they take control of internet. So these are all the steps to, um, let's say, annihilate Ukrainian identity. And as we see, uh, Russians have this multi-faceted approach to do it. We, we can talk about various tools, starting from killings, starting from war crimes uh, and finishing with such things as forced purportiz- passportization or forced education in Russian schools.
0: Indeed, this is a huge problem as um, we are always saying that Russian approach to imperialism is an approach which is deeply connected with uh, uh, assimilation, So, assimilation as a tool of colonization. Russians are trying to say that alterity does not exist, that you don't have a chance to be another person, a different person, a different culture, a different nation than the Russians. So the sameness, the sameness between Russians and Ukrainians is a key tool of uh, domination, not the, the concept of difference, the hierarchy as it was rather in the Western imperialism, in the British or French imperialism, uh, in the nineteenth century um, or twentieth century. But the idea of sameness, therefore, new textbooks, therefore, the, this topic that Ukrainians do not exist, etc. So it's it's really a very important thing to study and to understand this reprogramming and the changing of consciousness. Okay, Maxim, maybe the last topic. Uh, we, we actually probably, it was expected that sometimes in the information space, there will be a topic of a possible trade-offs, of a possible compromises. And when Ukraine is, for example, proposed to choose, what does it choose to regain its territories or to join NATO? And this is a very uh, difficult Trade-offs, which Ukrainians are not discussing, because the there is this decisiveness uh, in the society that we need to regain our territories and we need to join NATO, and these two goals will be will be achieved. But there are, you know, things in the information space that go into this direction, like what can Ukraine give away. Can, should ukraine give away its territories accept the losses should Ukraine and, and its people its its citizens or should ukraine rather give away give away a, a dream to join nato so what can you tell us about this so more specifically
1: recently uh, this topic was raised uh, by uh, stian jensen chief of staff of nato secretary general uh, who uh, said, basically, that uh, such trade-off was possible. He did not specify whether it was discussed politically or not, but uh, the very that an official, a high-level official of NATO, even uttered the words that uh, Ukraine's territories, occupied territories, can be uh, given away in exchange for membership. That's uh, already a notorious development. And I think, uh, well, first of all, this, uh, the seriousness of, the, of these discussions have been Uh, rejected by both Ukrainian leadership and NATO leadership, so uh, both parties have confirmed that nothing of the kind is being discussed. But uh, the very fact that these uh, things resurface is uh, very disturbing, because um, those who, I understand why for some it may, especially in the West, it may appear as well, not that bad of an idea because those territories are occupied. Ukraine has hard time regaining them uh, from from its appearance to the west, and also Ukraine, uh, and also everything in those uh, territories basically has been demolished. So uh, I understand why it's easy to say that uh, that might not be that difficult of a price, but it it should be understood that we Ukrainians, first of all we think in the category of people that are left behind there and this is not something that we can afford losing those people as a nation uh, because it undermines the very idea of Ukrainian nation Uh, so uh, this this is why it's impossible and secondly even if we only talk about the politics here it is not going to be it would not uh, work that neatly because yes if there is a trade-off seemingly everything would be fine but we should not under uh, we should not underestimate should not forget that russia that way would still have achieved its goal it would still have occupied ukrainian lands and we know that the bigger picture about how russia operates is that if you show russia the your uh willingness to compromise and if Russia understands that it has gained something its appetites will only grow. For instance, even before the invasion into Ukraine Russia has already been had already been talking about uh, the Poland and Baltic states being the next targets that we need to reconquer because it's our historical territories etc etc and even then before the war, Nothing precluded the, the, the fact the fact of it being the NATO bloc did not preclude Russia from those appetites. Do you think then, if the West, if the West, lets Russia take those territories at whichever cost to Ukraine, even if it's if it looks inviting for Ukraine to become a NATO member state that way, do you really think? That Russia would stop with those occupied territories. So that's the bigger picture. That's the more generic message here. But it's important to have that bigger picture before your eyes to understand that this is a no-go and why this is a no-go.
0: Indeed, I think we need to really think about the the bigger goals of Russia, and it's obviously not only Ukraine. The bigger goal was actually d- declared in 2021, it's a reshaping and remapping of the European security uh, architecture in which at least part of Europe should be controlled by Russia again as it was in the Yalta. Yalta a formula of the world order and we should keep that in mind Uh, thank you Maxim and thank you Nastya uh, for this very deep and detailed conversation, let me remind you that um, this was a weekly episode of the podcast Explaining Ukraine Uh, we covered uh, the week between August 15th and August 21st 2023 Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World a website in English about Ukraine My name is Volodymyr Yermolonko, I'm a Ukrainian philosopher, journalist and the chief editor of Ukraine World and I was joined by my colleagues Maxim Panchenko and Anastasia Heresychuk, journalists and analysts at Ukraine World. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Let me remind you that you can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front lines at paypal, ukraine.resisting at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Stay with us and stand with
2: Ukraine.